2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time.
0: Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity
2: mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I
0: learned at 20 is you. Equity.
1: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going?
3: I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. I've been very excited this whole week as we uh, deliver an ASX week across the Equity Mates podcast and the Get Started Investing podcast. Yes. And there's so much to be excited about because we've had the chance to speak to some of the best investors from the best investing companies in Australia, and we're covering some really exciting topics as well.
1: We are, and today is no different. Before we get into it, just a reminder that if you would like to listen to uh, our expert from today, plus all of the others that presented at the ASX Investor Day, head to the ASX website, Investor Day website, and the link will be in the show notes uh, and you can watch it all for free. But it is our absolute pleasure to welcome to Equity Mates Alison Savas. Alison, welcome.
2: Hi, guys. Thank you for having me today.
1: So, Alison is Antipodes' client portfolio manager. She has almost two decades of experience in the investment management industry, working for leading managers in Australia and Singapore. Antibodies have an active ETF listed on the ASX and the ticker code is AGX1. And we're going to be chatting today about decarbonisation, what's happening overseas and doing a bit of a look at a couple of stocks that are super interesting in this space.
3: Yeah. Now, Alison, before we get into uh, the thematic of decarbonisation and uh, two particular companies that you're interested in uh, around that theme, Uh, We wanted to start with the idea of pragmatic value because uh, that's how Antipodes invest. invest, And, um, you know, a lot of people have probably heard about value investing. You actually started your career at Platinum under one of Australia's most famous value investors in Kerr-Nielsen. But I don't expect too many people listening have heard of this pragmatic value approach. So can you take us through it?
2: pragmatic value you know as the name suggests look, we do have a value bias so valuations you know do matter to us but you know we don't just buy stocks just because they're cheap. You know we do look for good quality businesses that are cheap relative to their growth profile. Now a traditional value approach is going to you know, tend to wed to owning cheap or low multiple stocks with that expectation of mean reversion. Now, what that can risk is structural change in an industry. And that's where companies are being permanently impaired by their competition. Uh, And so these stocks are cheap for a reason. And, you know, they can often be those classic value traps. And we don't want to own those sorts of businesses, you know, no matter how low that multiple may be. So it's really about finding just great businesses that are cheap relative to their pro uh, their growth profile.
1: Are you able to share some examples of this pragmatic value versus you know your traditional value investing in what you're kind of seeing today?
2: In that sort of being prepared to pay, you know, the right price for growth. So our portfolio contains a collection of stocks across that growth spectrum. So at the low end, you know, we do have exposure to GDP plus light growers that are on low multiples, but importantly, they're market leaders and they're not under a threat of disruption. So a good example there would be ING Bank, you know, a really well capitalised retail bank. Um, It's gonna benefit from ongoing economic recovery in Europe and it's valued on a 9% payout yield. So really attractive valuation. Now at the other end of the spectrum, uh, we do have exposure to companies that are valued on what many would think of as being optically high pe's but they're growing at a really fast rate so a good example of that bucket would be tencent you know it's valued at 10 uh, 18 times core earnings but those earnings are growing at 20% per annum so paying 18 times is it's not an expensive multiple to pay you know and in fact we think that's cheap so ING and a Tencent both have a place in a pragmatic value portfolio.
3: Alison, I love the fact that uh, you're interested in Tencent. Uh, I came in hot at the start of the year talking about how great a company Tencent was and have really suffered uh, this year as it's fallen. But great to hear you guys are interested in, <laughs> in it as well.
2: Well, well, you'll be pleased to know we have actually been buying it recently. It's one of the, it, we've we've used sort of that change in regulatory backdrop to add to our position. So we are we're like-minded. If that right, makes you... Right. Like that makes me concepts. feel better.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, you need to give more context around it was for our stock of the year. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's going on now. Yeah,
3: yeah. Every, every year I have a kiss of death with the stock of the year. I, I can <laughs> no. cut any company in half. So um, taking suggestions next year for companies that you want to see for. Outs- <laughs> you should outsource it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, Alison, look, we want to... Uh, Speak about uh, decarbonization today. That was the key, I guess, theme in your uh, ASX Investor Day presentation. It's one that's really interesting to the Equity Mates community. Obviously, climate change is front of mind, and when there's such a big uh, disruption or such a big change across the world, uh, there's big winners and losers as a result. So let's get stuck in, um, and let's start at the very top when we talk about decarbonisation. What, what are we talking about and what does it actually look like in the economy?
2: Well, decarbonisation is the premature closing of fossil fuel-based energy and replacing it with electricity from carbon neutral sources. So if we want to keep global warming to that you know, one and a half to two degrees above pre-industrial levels, we need to halve greenhouse gases by 2050 and we need to eliminate them by 2100. Now, the bulk of these greenhouse gases are in the form of carbon dioxide, and that's hence the term decarbonisation. Now, another way to think about global warming is that 75% of greenhouse gases are related to the combustion of fossil fuels, and most of that is is, um, carbon dioxide and methane. Fuel is combusted, you know, really for two purposes. You know, the first is is kinetic energy, so for motion, um, you know, to drive our cars, or it could in an industrial process, it will be to spin a turbine. And then fuel is also combusted to create heat, and that could be to heat or cool our homes, or again, in uh, you know, heat in an industrial process. In most of these cases, not all, but most of them we can replace fossil fuels with electricity from non-fossil sources like hydro or variable renewables like solar wind or even nuclear which you know is a less popular choice but it is a low carbon alternative so you know, from um, the perspective of the economy, you know, these technologies already exist, but we need to scale them up. Um, and, you know, that gets us three quarters of the way to achieving our climate objectives.
1: Yeah, well, there's no doubt that as citizens, there's, uh, you know, we understand why decarbonisation is so important to fight climate change. As investors, though, why does decarbonisation represent a good investing thematic
2: look the world you know as you said the world is going to go greener and you know decarbonization is a central pillar of policy across you know europe china and the us so to meet the goals that policymakers have set it requires an enormous amount of investment and this isn't an investment cycle or a thematic that's going to play out over a few quarters it's going to play out over decades and you know for us that's what makes it such a great investment thematic
3: there's a number of drivers of this theme. You know, obviously from the bottom up, costs have come down a lot in a whole bunch of renewables. The cost curve in solar is something to behold. But also from the top down, we're seeing a lot of government policy come into the space and really and drive this change. We're recording uh, right before Glasgow kicks off. This will be released after Glasgow. So hopefully we've seen some really strong commitments come out of that. But this feels like the right time to really be talking about decarbonisation and thinking about it as investors. With Glasgow on our minds, uh, what are we seeing from governments around the world, both in terms of commitments and then how that's really translating into policy?
2: Look, I'll talk to the, the three major economic blocks because that's where we're really, you know, seeing quite a lot of, lot of, lot of change, China, the US and Europe. And, and I'll start with China. You know, China's got a goal to reach peak carbon emissions by 2030 and to be carbon neutral by 2060, which, you know, will be no easy feat for China given the starting position and and a a pretty big dependence on coal. But the policy change that we are seeing in China is um, prioritising reducing emissions over adding more and more capacity to these very high emitting sectors like coal and steel and, and aluminium and chemicals. And China has some pretty, you know, has some of the most aggressive EV targets globally, with um, EVs to account for 20% of new car sales by 2025. And, you know, China's moving towards more renewables. And and you mentioned the cost of solar. You know, in China, the all-in cost of greenfield solar is the same as coal without subsidies. So we're seeing China move in that direction. And then even in the US, the southwest of the US is one of the richest solar resources globally with more than, um, I think it's around 10,000 gigawatts of utility-scale solar plants. And then in the Midwest, it's got wind throughout the entire year now, with investment in the grid connecting the north to the south, this wind could produce electricity every day. Uh, but the U.S. needs to make investment in this high voltage, you know, in, in high voltage grid. So even though even with the U.S. there's a lot of gas, given the extent of wind and solar that the U.S. has, it, it increasingly makes sense for the U.S. to invest in in renewables. And we think this will accelerate under the Biden administration. I think where all the action is or where it's sort of most exciting is is certainly in Europe. Europe's very serious about reducing carbon emissions, you know, with some of the most aggressive targets, uh, with a legally binding goal to reduce emissions by 55% from 1990 levels and to be carbon neutral by 2050. Europe's got its new green deal, which is a €4 trillion investment plan over the next decade to help achieve these goals so just to put a bit of context around that four trillion euros is equivalent to incremental investment of two percent of gdp every year for the next 10 years which is pretty significant when when you compare it to europe's um economic growth rate Mm. and it could create 20 million jobs so it's also creating employment now At the core of this this, um, New Green Deal is Europe's emissions trading scheme, which has put a, a price on the cost of carbon abatement, so just the cost of reducing carbon emissions. Now, this scheme is not new. It's been around since 2005, and it really targets the power sector and the very other large industrial emitters. So, power producers have got to purchase certificates to offset their carbon emissions, um, but where it gets really interesting is that the number of certificates available every year they they decline. So you know it, it's actually going to force the power sector to to switch to renewables. And look, it's a really neat system because the funds that are generated from the sale of these certificates, and it's not insignificant, and we're talking around forty to sixty billion euros per annum, those funds are being used to subsidise. A reduction in fossil fuels in other parts of the economy. So to subsidize the take up of EVs or to replace gas with, with green electricity. So Europe's Europe's got a real a real plan in place. But also what you can see here is that as electrification occurs in, in other sectors, it's going to lead for an increase in demand for electricity, which puts even more pressure on the power producers to switch to renewables. So. You know, on on the numbers that we have internally, uh, we think wind and solar can grow from um, it's around 20% of power generation today to, you know, 60% by 2030, which has a whole host of implications. You know, we're going to have to see investment in the grid. And, and in fact, we're seeing that play out in Europe's power market today. There's been an underinvestment in the grid. And as renewable generation has increased, the grids become unstable. And we need to see a lot more investment in transmission and distribution. We're going to need to see investment in storage because, you know, as you know, the sun doesn't necessarily shine and the wind doesn't necessarily blow at the same time as, as peak demand. So, you know, we need to be able to store this excess generation in times of low demand so, so we don't lose the energy. So, Yeah, a lot needs to happen. You know, it's not just about a bit of solar here and some EVs there. Um, It really is an investment super cycle, which is going to play out over a very long period of time.
3: Alison, we're going to cover two stocks that uh, you're particularly interested in, in terms of how we play uh, this thematic, or in terms of how Antipodes is playing this thematic. Before we do, I want to pick up on something you mentioned there. You said Europe has had a trading scheme since 2005. And when I hear that, all I think is that Australia could have followed them in 2008, but instead we had a bit of a lost decade in terms of climate policy in Australia. So when you look at Europe and you see how far ahead they are than Australia and the rest of the world... um, What can we learn from them? What should Australian policymakers be learning and perhaps copying uh, from Europe?
2: I think what's important is also the context and also what drives the motivation. I think the context is what shows you what's driving that motivation in Europe. Europe's a net importer of fossil fuels. So reducing um, dependence on these imports is positive for Europe's GDP. Um, Europe spends, it's around 120 billion, uh, billion euros per annum on importing energy. And, and of course, Europe's a wealthy country that can afford the investment. So in Europe's case, decarbonisation, it's a bit of a no-brainer, right? Um, you know, because it, 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 it's adding to GDP and it's creating jobs internally, when you look compared to Australia, you know politically it's it's a it's a different decision. We're dealing with a different framework here. The challenge in Australia is that we have large amounts of coal and gas, and so the transition is 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 more challenging. Where we are lucky in Australia is that we do have tremendous solar and wind resources, and Australia is a wealthy nation. And you know, as you mentioned, there is a will. You know, there's a will a real push from the community to shift in this direction. So we can afford the cost of of the transition. The problem is that politics are unpredictable. Uh, But, uh, you know, if there's any doubt about decarbonisation is, you know, the Australian Nationals are on board with a net zero target in 2050. And that's positive. So hopefully, you know, we will start to see, you know, much more concrete policies.
3: The most hopeful thing that we saw out of that whole Nationals-Liberal squabble, shall we say, was that business was getting on and even some of the most unexpected businesses were making big commitments. The day that the national parties came out and said, we're not, we're not sure if we're going to commit uh, Rio Tinto tripled their investment and and tripled the ambition, their ambitions when it came to carbon reduction. And, you know, that's, one of the most old school mining companies out there. So exactly. people often look at the market and, and think that ma- the market moves faster than politics. And hopefully that's a good indication. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But look, Alison, we want to talk about two uh, companies that uh, you're interested in, uh, that you spoke about at the ASX Investor Day to play uh, this decarbonization trend. Before we do, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors.
1: So, Alison, as Ren mentioned, we have two stocks from your presentation that you're uh, very interested in to do with decarbonization. And here at Equity Mates, we love nothing more than talking about stocks. <laughs> uh, so, the, the two that you spoke about were Siemens. Siemens. Yeah. <laughs> and Norse Hydro. So, Correct. let's start with Siemens. For each uh, of these, we'll go through what the company does the role it's playing in decarbonisation, and then chat about valuation. So, for those who haven't heard of Siemens before, what, what does this company do?
2: Siemens historically was this big conglomerate. So it's a very big industrial company that, you know, did a whole host of in, industrial businesses. Now, but what's happened in more recent history is that it's actually slimmed down its its portfolio substantially. And today, well, where its focus really is today, which which is what makes it such an exciting investment is it's the global leader in factory automation so it's the only company globally that can do both the hardware to make a manufacturing line run as efficiently as possible but also the software which controls and optimizes those processes now as we move into a low carbon world Manufacturing lines have to be redesigned and retooled. And look, just look at the auto industry—you know, huge investment required to, you know, pivot from um, manufacturing lines that that focused on internal combustion engine vehicles to EVs. Now, um, Siemens on the hardware side, look—they do the robots and products to make manufacturing lines energy efficient. But on the software side, they have Digital Industries, which, amongst other things, allows a company to make a digital twin of the product that it's trying to produce so rather than manufacturers having to produce you know these endless prototypes of products in the real world um, they can now design build and even stress test their product in the virtual world so in cars this this includes a virtual wind tunnel um, so this is it's it's incredibly efficient um, and look a little a little known fact about Siemens is that it's Well, the eighth largest software business globally is housed inside Siemens, you know, a massive industrial company, which is pretty remarkable. And they also they're also a top three player in rail. So they provide the signaling equipment, which is really key to rail infrastructure. Rail is the most environmentally friendly form of of transport. And, you know, it's critical to reducing carbon emissions in the transport sector Again, looking at Europe, you know, Europe's in discussion to remove short-haul flights where rail can be a a viable alternative. So what, you know, what you can see here with Siemens, you know, what role does it play? It's a facilitator. You know, it's it's an enabler of reducing carbon emissions. Uh, And we think it's going to be a a key winner in in a low-carbon world. In terms of valuations or, you know, how we think about the value of this company, it's, you know, despite... Its position, You know, it's valued at only 14 times earnings with those earnings growing more than 10% per annum. And in fact, if you, if you exclude all the other bits and pieces and you just look at digital industries, which I hope, you know, you can sort of hear from that commentary, you know, that's really the jewel in Siemens Crown. You know, it's valued at 10 times EBITDA, so 10 times earnings before um, interest tax and, and amortisation. Where it's pure play peers are valued at 25 times EBITDA, so so we do see that there's still quite a bit of, of upside left in Siemens, and in fact, it it is one of the largest positions in our portfolio.
3: I love that. I uh, there's well, number one, I love the fact that the relative valuation in on European stocks compared to American stocks. There's just yes, it's it's absolutely. very different, yeah. Uh, but I love the 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 way that you're approaching that theme. You know, a lot of people think. The grid is going to change. Um, you know, we're going to decarbonize. so let's go to renewable energy stocks. But the thought process of all these manufacturing lines are going to have to change, and, and how and who's going to change them, and how they're going to change. Not a way that I thought of playing that trend. So, you know, this is why we love having these conversations. It's a <laughs> it's a fascinating company. If people want to do more uh, research, uh, Siemens, it's German. Is uh, yes. what, what's the stock uh, ticker?
2: Uh, look, it's SIE.
3: Okay. Yeah, with, nice.
2: a, with a European bid at the end. Yeah. GR,
3: <laughs> potentially <GR. laughs> So the, the second stock that you're looking at to play this trend, similarly in Europe, Norsk Hydro. I think the name suggests, uh, you know, what the company is involved in. But uh, can you give us the 101? What does the company do and what role is it playing in decarbonisation?
2: Well, I might surprise you here. So North right. Kedro is a global aluminium producer, which I know... You did surprise me. Like the, <laughs> the most interesting stuff to talk about. So so bear with me. Look, aluminium smelting is an old world industry, but usage of aluminium is increasingly new world because aluminium is as light, it's recyclable and it's as strong as steel. Now... Aluminium smelting is, it's incredibly energy intensive, which has traditionally meant a reliance on cheap coal. So the opposite of being green. Now, with Norsk, though, what we really love about Norsk is that it actually does produce its aluminium predominantly using hydropower. So it is sustainable. And and in fact, its carbon footprint is 80% lower than its coal-based peers. I guess how you know how do we think about where it fits in? If we maybe if we talk on demand, one of the sort of the key uses of aluminium is in is in autos. Now, autos today though they are predominantly made out of steel because steel's a lot cheaper than than aluminium. But as we move into a world where we have more and more electric vehicles, the weight of that battery pack demands a much lighter vehicle. So, so to put it into context. Today, cars use around 180 kilos of aluminium per vehicle, but an electric vehicle uses 700 to 800 kilos of aluminium. You know, so that's a four times uplift. So, you know, we can see increasing demand for aluminium coming from electric vehicles, lightweighting traditional SUVs from energy efficient buildings and also packaging. And in fact, our conversations with key aluminium consumers including Coca-Cola and Volkswagen showed a very positive response towards using green aluminium because they want to reduce the emissions through their supply chain. So, using green aluminium really works works for them. And also, they showed a potential to, you know, the potential to even pay a higher price for that green aluminium. And Norsk is going to be a natural beneficiary of, you know, lower aluminium capacity and also production coming out of China.
0: Mm.
2: Now, in terms of valuations, it's still valued at a, a substantial discount to the replacement cost of its very unique assets. So the way we think about this company, well, look, we see more than 30% up, like upside left in the stock um, as the market continues to, you know, appreciate just how well positioned it is.
1: Yeah, I love I love hearing about this stuff. It's just it's just so interesting for for those who are listening at home, Allison, and thinking, you know, this is a massive opportunity, a decades long opportunity. It feels like, um, but also one where, you know, there's probably many different parts of the thematic that you can be look, mm. looking to invest. Mm. What what sort of areas are really just broadly exciting you or where should we think about keeping an eye on when it, you know, when we're thinking about investing in companies like or thematics like this?
2: Yeah, sure. And I think you touched on it earlier in one of those questions where, you know, decarbonisation, everyone knows that the world's going greener. And so you are going to get these sort of periods where um, you're going to get bubbles, right? Um, there's going to be hot stocks. And so, you know, we want to avoid those hot stocks and still play the still play the thematic. Uh, and the way we think about it at Antibodies is, is we do kind of, we break it down, well, certainly now the way we've, we're thinking about it is we've broken it down into sort of three categories. So the first is is to looking to look at those very well priced utilities that will get paid a return for greening the greed. And so that's sort of one one category. The next category would be commodities or materials and and Norsk great example there Um, and it's just it's those commodities that are going to be or disproportionately benefit from decarbonisation and today we like aluminium and and we also like copper for for similar reasons on that demand side and then the third bucket where where you've got the Siemens type business is your enablers so it's those companies facilitating decarbonisation and so we talk through Siemens, but look, other stocks in our portfolio on that sort of enabler side is, you know, we do have exposure to electric vehicles. Now, we take that exposure in companies where we see attractive valuations. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say, any pragmatic <laughs> so, value in so, Tesla? So or? we don't own the, <laughs> <laughs> the one we don't own. <laughs> um, but look, you know, we own Toyota and we own Volkswagen. You know, these are traditional automakers who sort of, they pushed aside in, in the rush to own in the rush to own Tesla. You know, these are companies that are on, Really attractive um, multiples, but they're also, you know, being really front footed on their uh, move towards an electric fleet.
1: Well, I mean, I feel like if they don't, they die. That's kind of where it's at, right?
2: Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And look, with that, in that traditional auto space, just some of them have been more front footed than others. And that's what we're looking for.
3: Mm. Yeah. You, Bryce, was a big fan of VW. They yeah. may what? They've got some commitment about going fully electric by something very soon, isn't it?
2: And actually, we do think they will be, they'll be as, in terms of volumes produced of electric vehicles, they really will be up there with Tesla. Mm. They've really gone full throttle on electrification, on on electric vehicles because of the diesel, well, the diesel emissions scandal um, a number of years ago really forced them to make that change. So, I guess it's, you know, making lemonade out of lemons. Mm. That's one way of thinking about it.
3: <laughs> I, I just did some quick Googling. Uh, the commitment is in all electric in Europe by 2035. 2035. Yeah. Which is just a, a remarkable turnaround when you think about these companies having one business model, all of the production lines, as you were talking about earlier, Allison. And in the space of less than two decades, being like, we're going to be a completely new business.
2: Exactly. Uh, exactly. I mean, I guess that's one thing about uh, giving another plug here for pragmatic value is that <laughs> disruption is very real. I guess, you know, what we're trying to do at antiquities is, you know, we're acknowledging that disruption is, is, is real. So we don't want to run those, those, those cheap value traps, but it's, it's about finding a, an attractive way of accessing that disruption, you know, on, you know, paying the right price for it rather than paying any price for disruption. Um, mm. So I think that's really what we're trying to do.
3: On that point of pragmatic value and avoiding value traps, I feel like a lot of uh, it's a, a, a common sort of initiation into investing is people start by reading the Warren Buffett letters, reading security analysis um, uh, or The Intelligent Investor, those kind of books. Getting uh, bored and leaving. Yeah. <laughs> and then like really resonating with uh, value investing and then a lot of people get caught in a value trap at some point. I remember uh, – Earlier this year, I was speaking to someone who was talking about how AGL looks so cheap and, um, you know, it's, you know, all of the metrics seem to point that it was cheap, but it's just a business that is, is seriously struggling. And you know, that was a classic example of a value trap. For beginner investors listening, what are some tips or some rules of thumb that, uh, mm. that you use to separate those value opportunities that are pragmatic uh, from mm. those that may be traps?
2: This is a tricky one, and actually, look—it's a lesson I really learned as as an analyst back in in my analyst days. You know, as investors, we are just—we're always looking for a deal. I think is is <laughs> what the problem is, right? We're always looking for that that cheap stock, and we we can invariably get sucked into owning that, uh, you know, that fourth or fifth largest player in a market, which it's on the more attractive valuation, and the multiple will will mean revert or it'll, it'll catch up to its peers what you've always got to do is you've just really got to understand the business, uh, really understanding that competitive environment. And there will be instances where the tide lifts all boats, but there will be instances where it just simply won't. Mm. You've got to think more than just the quarters in front of you and and, and take that, that longer term approach and try and think quite holistically about the industry. There is a value on quality. And I think as investors, we've got to remember that you know, what we're doing is is we're buying a company that is going to generate returns through the cycle or returns on the capital that they've invested. And sometimes those better quality businesses are worth a little bit more. And and I think that's what we need to sort of, you know, keep in mind. Well, certainly at Pragmatic Value, that's what what we're trying to do is is that we don't want to just own the, the cheap stuff. We are prepared to pay that little bit more for a better quality business, because over the longer term, you know, your portfolio is going to be in a much better position.
1: Well, Alison, before we move to our final three questions that we love to finish with, um, is there anywhere that our audience can go to find more information on what you're doing, what Antipodes are doing, the fund, um, or yeah, your TikTok?
2: handle (laughs) (laughs) my tiktok would be the first place to start that's where you'll get the most that's where you get the most relevant information Uh, bearing in mind i do have 20 years investment experience so there is no tiktok (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, but seriously our website antipodespartners.com and we're also on linkedin and and we are on twitter even awesome. though we're
3: not on TikTok, awesome yet, yet. Bryce, yes, ma- yet. Bryce makes that TikTok joke uh, most interviews, and most of the time there's a laugh, and you know, obviously, no TikTok account. It'll be a real indicator that TikTok has gone mainstream when people start answering <laughs> well, that with, "Here's my handle." That's why I'm <laughs> yeah, doing it because
1: one day it's going to
3: happen. That is when you go. Hopefully, bite dance is public. You go long bite dance, short Facebook. That exactly, moment. exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this could be that sort of lead.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Alison would get us stuck into the final three questions. And the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read?
2: Yeah, look, there is a book called Capital Returns and it's by um, Marathon Asset Management. So it's another investment firm and, and also Edward Chancellor. And, and what it is, what the book is, is it, look, it's basically a reprint of Marathon's own investor letters and their own internal research notes along with commentary over their decade of investing It's roughly a decade i think it goes from um, 2002 to to 2015 and you know what's interesting well, well marathon they're long-term investors <clears throat> and their strategy is that they look at the capital cycle so their philosophy is is there is no point in trying to forecast demand because demand is is actually un- unpredictable it's too difficult to forecast What you need to understand um, in your investments is supply. And the point is, is that bubbles attract a lot of capital and a lot of investment. And a lot of capital means a lot of supply, which makes it really hard to make decent returns on on capital. So that's the part of the market you want to avoid. And, And instead... What you want to look for is those parts of the market where cap, capex or investment is is depressed or it's being taken out of the industry, and so and so supply is shrinking, and it's just a much more attractive competitive environment, and that's where you get higher returns on capital. So, that's that's an interesting one because it's it's there, you know it's it's hearing about what's going on or the discussions that are going on inside um, a firm which is taking that approach, which you know I think is an incredibly interesting approach.
3: Yeah, incredibly fascinating. I haven't heard of that book and I feel there's mm. a whole other podcast episode in that approach. Mm. so that's a that's a great one to add to the reading list. Uh, so the next uh, question we like to end with Allison, uh, forget valuation, forget the opportunity right now, just purely on company fundamentals. What's the best company you've ever come across?
2: I don't think I've got a pretty unique answer, which is disappointing, because I, I do want to have a unique answer. <laughs> but I actually think Microsoft is a remarkable company. You know, you can, we can sort of see the transition that's happened under C, CEO Nadella. The company's just transitioned from this closed ecosystem where Windows was was used to sell everything. And now it's got this much more open approach. You know, it's moved away from being centred around, around Windows. And it's, it's much more about the the cloud you know all its segments being in the cloud whether that's office 365 or cloud infrastructure or or, or gaming but for me i guess you know what's the most impressive thing about microsoft and, and why i think it's a, a great business is it's has got this enormous platform um, with a massive installed base mm. which just allows them to move into all sorts of adjacencies um, you know it's got this unrivaled ability to to bundle and cross sell and and because of its size it can be competitive from the outset you know it can offer its products for free or for for a very low price which is a pretty difficult operating environment for you for your competitors who actually you know do need to monetize and I remember we're discussing it internally at work one of the guys was putting putting it into context and the the average office 365 subscriber only pays $15 a month Now, if you were to replicate what you get in Office 365 using other software uh, providers like Zoom and Slack, and and you would need a whole host of others, you'd have to pay more than $100 a month. So, you know, it just shows you – it's so hard to displace. It's got this – unrivaled lock, I think, over, over customers. And so I think that's why it's a great business.
3: Mm, yeah, it is an unbelievable business. The the true definition of a network effect when we talk about the whole yes. world of business running on off the office suite. And then uh, Bryce and I were actually talking in the office this morning about AI and, um, you know, Microsoft have all these exclusive partnerships with OpenAI, who's like on the forefront of AI. And it's just this is another business area that they're going to come in and dominate
2: and, and look that's the thing like with the size of that company it's just got such an enormous r&d budget you know to spend on moving into you know new great areas and, and again that's what increases its competitive position
3: and now, Allison, uh, final question. Because otherwise, we could talk about Microsoft all day. Um, if you think back to uh, you know your younger self starting out uh, in the fi- in the world of finance, uh, what advice would you give your younger self?
2: Look, I mean, I touched on this earlier, but it really is the advice I would give to myself as as a as a you know more junior analyst would be to. <sighs> maybe pay up for that better quality company. You know, don't don't fish around really at the bottom end. Sometimes it is a bit better to pay a little bit more. Um, particularly if 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 that you know you know when you're talking about the fourth fourth competitor versus the largest the largest player in a particular in a particular segment you know if that that large that market leader the valuation of that company is attractive in an absolute sense or it's attractive in a relative sense compared to how it's normally traded you're going to be better off buying that business because it's the company that's going to be the market share taker it's going to be in a better position to protect its profitability Uh, and it's probably going to earn superior returns through the cycle. So it's, you know, don't wait to low multiples, don't hope for this, you know, that the value, don't assume that valuation gap is going to close, so don't assume mean reversion. So that would be my advice to my younger self.
1: Love it, Alison. It's been an absolute pleasure and joy speaking with you today. We've taken a lot from that conversation. We love chatting stocks and you've brought two to the equity mates community that, um, you know, are certainly playing that deep carbonization theme and one that I know is a thematic that's very uh, important and of interest to our community. So thank you for your time. Um, Thank you for your presentation at the ASX day as well. A reminder to our community that if you'd like to check out Alison's Prezzo, as well as all of the other experts that have presented, head to the ASX website uh, or there's going to be a link in the show notes. But thank you very much, Alison. We appreciate your time.
2: Oh, thanks, guys. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me today.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you, so drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equitymates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time.
0: Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. EquityMates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the EquityMates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.